We live in a world of dynamic cyber threats, but one thing is clear, human behavior is the most vulnerable target for attacks. Welcome to Behave by CyberSafe, the foremost cybersecurity podcast focused on human cyber risk. Organizational awareness is no longer enough, so how will your team stay protected? Be sure to subscribe to Behave on your preferred listening app for cutting edge insights into our evolving industry and stay ahead of the shift to security behaviors and human risk quantification. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Behave podcast. My name is Munya Hoto, and I am delighted today to be joined by Michelle Leversley, who is the Cybersecurity Awareness Lead at Channel 4. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. Well, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, and I'm sure we're going to cover a lot of ground. But Michelle, for the benefit of our guests, would you mind just telling us what a Cybersecurity Awareness Lead is Indeed, what does one do? What does a day in the life of a cybersecurity awareness lead look like? And more specifically, what does it look like at Channel 4? Uh, why don't you take us through that? <laughs> well, this is quite a new role. So we haven't had a, an awareness team before. So it's quite nice. So I have a blank canvas. But yeah, I think, well, for us and for most places I've worked before, it, it really depends on what the what the organisation is, how big it is. But my role involves working quite a bit with the comms teams and with different teams across the business and then working with our, our cybersecurity ambassadors, uh, who we call the foxes, and just trying to make sure that we get the messaging right. And then if there's anything that goes wrong, which hopefully never does, but sometimes we have little alerts we have to send out or you know, somebody gets a... F- We've had quite a bit of issue, for instance, with of SMS scams recently coming in, which I think a lot of organisations have had. So it's making colleagues aware of that. And I'm very lucky because my colleagues are extremely receptive to that and very helpful. So it's a, it's a good place to do it. Interesting, Michelle. You've co- you've already touched on a number of topics that I'd like to dive into in in quite some depth over the course of our conversation. But I'm interested to pick the. This is a new role for Channel Four. What necessitated the role? How has the role come about? Was there a trigger? Was there a, just a, a general appreciation that this is important in today's day and age? If you're allowed to, of course, tell us how the role came about. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, well, I'm not speaking for Channel 4 here, of course, but I think like many organisations, they, we're quite small as well. We actually are only about a thousand people in the organisation, which is smaller than I thought it would be when I interviewed. We, we run quite lean and I think there were, there was a team of people, I've just joined a team who were kind of exhausting themselves doing all the work. And then it gets to the point where you, you say, well, I I kind of need somebody else to do this. So they got me and I I hope they're pleased. (laughs) Well, that's great. I'm sure they don't at all. I'm sure they don't at all. How does somebody, and and I'd love to learn more about your journey as far back as you want to go, how does one end up in a position as a cybersecurity awareness lead? What were those steps? So, you know, what were your kind of pit stops along the way in this this career? Well, I qualified as a teacher, actually, originally, a long time ago. I'm quite old now. So over 20 years ago, I qualified. I got my PGCE. But before that, I was in Japan teaching. I did some other things like that. So I've always been in kind of training and learning. But I've always liked the tech side of things. I'm not, my skills, I always say that there's a difference between technical skills. So you can be technical as in coding, but there are also technical skills if you understand the law or if you can communicate or if you have social sciences skills. Those are all technical as well. Just the same as if you can fix a car, it's the same. So my skills are much more in the training, the learning, the getting things to be accessible, the understanding about where people are and how to kind of 
really make things, make content that that they like or even talk to them kind of a level that they want to be spoken to, which is either, you know, if you're talking to the board or you're talking to people in a call centre and things are very different depending on the time they've got and how they want to be spoken to and what they want to be spoken to about. So, yeah, so I was always in schools bringing the, the interactive whiteboards in and the projectors when they were still quite new. This is a long time ago, showing my age. And then I did a lot of work with private clients. And because I was working with, say, the CEO on his English or, or her English or their English, I was often kind of going over business problems with them, which is because you're, you're getting into, well, you need, I need you to help me produce this talk for this presentation I'm doing with its client. And I'd end up giving them advice on, well, you need to build a website. This is how you need to do it. Or you need to integrate your payment solutions here. Because this was in Switzerland and France, a lot of places I was as well. And they, they still actually don't have a lot of online kind of payments. Um, there are a lot of places where people are still quite suspicious of online buying and things, They're a bit more suspicious of it. That's very broad strokes. But so I, got, I was always doing quite a lot of te- technological stuff. But you're getting into this job. I'm pleased to see more and more people coming into it from lots of different backgrounds because I think the skills you need are are being able to talk being confident like that enjoying talking I love talking too much plus my family and just being able to communicate and and to like people because that's what you need you need to be the bridge we go bridges go both ways right but you need to be that bridge but it, it took me a while to get in took me a while to get the roles that I wanted also because I was refusing quite a few roles because I didn't want to fire people for clicking on links, but that's a whole separate conversation. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that. I'm sure we're going to talk about that and kind of that, that carrot and stick tension that exists within the sector for sure. And I'm really delighted to hear that you started your career in teaching. Uh, my very first job was as a teaching assistant. I never quite qualified as a teacher, but I've always had a soft spot for teaching. My mom was a teacher for 25 years and I just think that, you know, they're the most wonderful people because I saw the magic of education and how it broadens your horizons. And I had the opportunity to work in a classroom just as they come out of, I think, nursery into into the, f- the first grade, you know, really wonderful kind of gentle age where you, you actually see with your own eyes, somebody who does not know the alphabet, go from learning the alphabet to putting together a set of letters to recognizing their own name. And I will never forget that moment when some of my, my, my pupils figured out that they'd written their own name and they were so proud. So, you know, if if wishes were horses, I think I would have genuinely or will genuinely at some point end up back in the classroom because I have deep, deep respect and admiration for for the teaching profession, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a lot of work though, that early years. I did secondary, it's much easier. I do not have the patience for early years. I take my hat off to them. And you have to do all the different topics, all the math, all the literacy and stuff. Well, I have have a two-year-old now and, and I'm learning a lot about just how busy, uh, you know, you know, infants and toddlers can be. And, and it is, it is an amazing adventure, but I, I do agree with you that, you know, again, the nursery teachers all has to them because they're amazing and just wonderful with twin surrounded by 20 kids that all have a mind of their own. Okay. Okay. So, so, so the Genesis wasn't teaching you've always wanted to help people. You understood this context about, you know, you can be technical in the engineering sense, but actually you can be technical in terms of core understanding of processes and systems and how those things work together to achieve a good outcome. And you're applying that knowledge from what I'm hearing and understanding in this cyber awareness lead role at, at, at channel four. Let's, let's switch over to cybersecurity. 
Right now, there is a lot of noise in the industry, isn't there? There's a school of thought that says that traditional security awareness training, as it's, as it's known, is, is dead or dying. And, and that's because uh, there's been an over-reliance on just, you know, quarterly or annual training. There's been over-reliance on phishing simulations and, and, and click data, which you hinted at at a moment. What is your perspective on the industry at this point in time? What would you say as a commentator, both as a practitioner, but also somebody that's seen the evolution of the industry over some time? What, what, what's your take on it at the moment? Oh, I have so many takes and so many opinions. Uh, Awareness-wise... I think I would, and coming back to a point you made at the the start, um, I think I would just like to see people who are doing the work in the organisations have more confidence in themselves because this is an amazing job. I love it. I love the job that I do. I really love my job now. And the previous work that I've done, a lot of it has been incredibly hard work, you know, working with, with and around schools on kind of tech support awareness, doing advocacy work within communities and things like that. It's, it's unpaid, it's hard work. And, you know, there are people getting all these big glitzy awards and, and, and all the rest of it, but a lot of them aren't actually out there. A lot of the people making the most noise aren't the one doing the work. I'm not saying that if you get an award, you don't deserve it. Please don't get it twisted. But, um, I would love to see people confident enough to bring their own flair because your organisation, whether it's a small you know, public sector thing, whether you're doing it like I used to do at a school or um, working with communities or you're working with a huge multinational organisation with hundreds of people on your awareness team and, and hundreds of people, are, you know, you're thousands of people who you're working with and for, you can bring your own self to that and you know what your organization needs but I think we have a little bit too much focus on you should do this and you should do this and this is how it works instead of people being able to say well hold on a minute this is kind of what works for my organization and this is what works for me and I feel that this is right so I'd love to see that because I know that when I've even you know I've published and I'm not alone here. This isn't just a <laughs> worries me, but I have published advice that I've often co-written with very you know, code technical people. And immediately that it gets published, you have reply people saying, oh, but that's not right. I had one piece to give you an example where it was edited and the editors changed one password. I'd recognized, I'd, I'd suggested password managers and they changed one password to what, to the, I think it's written one password. I should actually know this off the top of my head, but one, anyway, they'd edited it to make it the wrong way so instead of the number one it was written one or something like that and I got torn apart over that <laughs> so I mean not not badly but it's just the criticism and so for people putting content out there whether it's public or whether it's internal I think there's a real pressure for them to to be perfect or to you know we argue as a sector over how you say sequel or how you say gif or whatever else and i'll have just said those two things and people will be saying oh no that's not how you say this you know what i mean but why why are we doing that when actually is the is the content correct if i'm saying if i'm giving somebody terrible advice like if i'm saying your password is fine if it's four four letters long and it <laughs> you know it's just your maiden name don't do that obviously but if i'm saying that then fine fair enough criticize me but if people are just doing the work and I think we just need people to be more supportive so that people can bring their flair to that. Because I feel like it's very stifled at the moment. That's my take. 
that's really interesting. That's a really interesting point that you make. And, 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 and I want to come back to some of the other things that you said there, but just on this one about how the job can be at times thankless and indeed isolating, it sounds like, because you're trying to do the right thing. And there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a heavy amount of scrutiny. And I think this might be industry-wide and you will have a perspective on this that, that, that I don't for sure. What drives that behavior, do you believe, across organizations? Why is the security team the one that is overly scrutinized in that way or perhaps does not get the thank yous that are afforded to them? And is it because, of course, they're preventing bad things from happening? So when bad things don't happen, you've done your job. But when bad things do happen, it's very obvious and there's a lot of noise that's made about it. What, what would you think drives that kind of, um, that kind of culture that you're describing? Oh, I think there's a, that you could do a whole PhD thesis on that. One of the things I would say is that's where awareness really comes in because information security as a whole has somewhat of a problem <laughs> in that people can be very reluctant to ask for advice. If you think about our training, one of the major training providers, their slogan is try harder. And if you see, if you reference that back, but if you reference, I mean, that's no disrespect to that training provider. I'm just saying that that's become a, an industry slogan and that isn't something that's something that you get told you know oh, we'll try harder it gets thrown out it's almost like an ethos and also we we will mock people not I mean we wouldn't you and I but and I'm sure the the people listening to this wouldn't because they're they're coming and they're trying to learn and and be open to things but I do think we have a problem with people mocking you know um, social media teams when they're trying to respond to a breach you know T-Mobile or Virgin in very the last few years have had issues and and we haven't been very welcoming. And a lot of the advocacy work I've ended up doing and the published work that I've done and others have done, I'm not just feeling sorry for myself here, that has been maybe criticised or ignored. That's been done because these people have, or organisations have gone to the, the loud people, the well-known people who, who get the keynotes and who get all, this, all these plaudits and everything and who are well-known. And the organisations will, will hire them. Oh, we need somebody to come and talk to our people. Let's go and get this well-known person. And yet they actively refuse to help people often or they just ignore them. And so it's left to the level of, and so coming back to this point about how you as an awareness person are the bridge, like I said, you are the person who will help. Maybe these security teams sometimes aren't that great at communicating outwards or even listening. That's not always the case, but, and also sometimes they, they need to understand what the needs are from the business or from the outside, from your clients, consumers, depending on what kind of work you do as a business. And it's also to help other people understand that message too. So your colleagues, they need to understand, well, the security team needs you to do this. And this is how I'm going to tell you that why you need to do it and what you need to do, why it matters and all this and how you can do it. But that's, that's messaging. So I think it's about, I think often it's a kind of an image problem. And uh, But that's where we are really important because we bring that real human, that's the human factor. It's, it's us. It's bringing that between those two sections. You, what what I'm hearing, Michelle, is there's a, there's a big word that's swelling in my mind here, which is around this notion of trust and and building that trust, defending that trust, protecting it to ensure that it's not fractured or broken at any point in time. What, what's your experience with kind of perhaps coming off the back foot and then kind of establishing or building a level of trust across organisations or with colleagues with respect to this practice? Or what do you what would you advise somebody who said my challenge is actually you know maybe there's been some reputational damage and I would like to see more trust being lent to the team or a better trust culture around the organization with respect to the to our security awareness or indeed just our security posture internally 
Well, I think there's lots of things you can do. I think the first one is that trust trust goes both ways. It's like any relationship. And I, I think one of the things that, that concerns me slightly, and I know people will disagree with me and that's fine, but I, like I said earlier, I, I find it quite troubling that as an awareness sector, there is quite a lot of talk of, well, I'll, I'm going to report these people to, to HR if they click on a link more than once, twice, whatever as if it was malicious. And there's a very separate insider threat situation there, but we're not talking about that here. And I think you build trust by by giving trust and by, by deserving it. It's like any relationship. And if you are constantly going behind people's backs, I don't think they're going to want to, they're going to just ignore all emails then, aren't they? Because they think, well, this is a phishing email. Or they won't trust you. So when you then, if they know that you are going to, put them on I've seen people talk about putting people on PIP which is quite a serious HR thing and it's basically well I'm not going to get into that but it is quite serious and I don't think if you are doing that with one hand you can then be going out to the to the company with another doing a campaign like in a moment after this I'm going to dress as a reindeer and I'm going to be giving out chocolate in one of our campaign cards um, I should have brought my antlers for this but I'm I'm hoping I'm going to be fairly well received and when I go out and I talk to people I want to be able to sit with them and chat to them and have them tell me stuff kind of in confidence and they are not going to do that if I if they think oh well she's actually she's going to be going and, and telling somebody this or I'm going to end up you know red flagged on some system and I know that from working in schools because a lot of the stuff, I, I just, a lot of the stuff that we have completely dismissed in more progressive schools and more progressive education places is in awareness. And it shouldn't be there because you can't get the trust. Michelle, you, you, you're touching on some big issues here. And, you know, the, I think the industry has struggled and colleagues have struggled for a long time with how to actually be helpful when it comes to social engineering because the kind of tried and tested method has been to trick and then trap and of course that does leave a, a bitter taste in the mouth of the people that are genuinely would you know going about their business doing their jobs and then they end up on a pip as you say or perhaps on a high risk user list or some other kind of training that's for people that have essentially failed it's a really tricky one and 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 the industry has struggled i i believe strongly to to move on from a different kind of way of helping colleagues when it comes to social engineering in particular, which, as you mentioned right at the top of this call, is becoming more sophisticated in terms of the channels and vectors across which it's coming. Here's a question for you. Do you believe that that behavior is driven by some of the data that the ICO keeps publishing around the fact that 80, 90%, depending on the year, of breaches are as a result of human error? And so that context has been shaping behavior, at least for security professionals up until now. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, I think the problem is that there is a, obviously humans are human, but you've got to meet them where they are, right? And I'll come back to that in a second. But it's, I think it, it's easier for, I think I'm not going to, I don't want to criticize any regulatory body or anything here, but um, I think it's very easy for those kind of bits of advice to be taken as, or we can, or, or interpreted as, well, we can take this advice, but it's not advice, it's not actionable, it's not for us to be to do anything. It's for us to blame our colleagues or our customers. So when actually your your um, my colleagues should actually be able to click on any link they see. Now they're not going to because they're very good. Okay, and they're fantastic people here. But if they, they should be able to do that because our security controls should limit that blast radius of that, you know, thing. Unequivocal on that, that should happen. Now 
criminals are very good. They, they're very good. As soon as you, you mitigate something, they're going to come at you again. You can never sleep in this sector. So you have to be honest and you have to also say, you know what? I mean, I open, this is coming back to the trust point. I open most sessions when I'm talking about phishing or anything else like that. When I say, you know, I've been, I've clicked on a link. You know, I got, I got suckered into a Google scam a few years ago just because, you know, I have three children. So, you know, they're running around all over the place and you're, you're distracted. Life happens. And so that's another thing. If I'm saying that, and that's why I hear a lot of people say that and open their talks by that and say, yeah, this is the best thing you can do, humanize it. But by the same, at the same time, often on the same conference program, you'll have people saying, discussing putting people on HR reports if they've clicked. So how does that work? It doesn't, there's no balance. So I think it's, it's about not blaming people it's about taking responsibility because organisations, unfortunately, love to blame the, the the workers. You know, oh, you're not productive enough. You're not doing this enough. I'm not talking about my current place of work. I'm just saying, just generally, we know what, how cap- capitalism, I can't speak today, sorry, works. It's very important if you want to build trust and if you want to have a progressive future-proof kind of awareness programme that you are moving with your colleagues and using your own humanity there. Because you're human facts. I mean... Often it will be the security team who click on a link or someone in, someone in a technology team somewhere. It's not necessarily going to be Margaret in marketing, right? So let's be honest, but let's also ask, ask the questions and flag to the board. You know, we have these problems. These are our top three, but actually there's a top 10 of things that we're concerned about because there always will be. Even if you've got a security team of thousands, and they're all super motivated and everything's going great. So let's be honest. Let's ask the questions. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And, and, you know, again, there's so much here. We could talk for hours. You know, one of the things that, you know, a very respected veteran of the industry, Lance Spitzner, says, uh, he's over at SANS, you know, he talks about the fact that because security teams have become so good at making the technology defenses robust, you know, these bad actors have now actually started to focus on the humans because that blast radius has been reduced as far as it could be. But of course, there's more that can always be done and there's more innovation going on over there. But bad actors noticed the fact that a lot of investment was going on to securing technology. And so they moved on to targeting people. And this the, the, the kind of philosophy of how do we fundamentally change the way organizations and indeed society addresses the human aspect of cyber risk speaks to exactly what you're speaking about, which is how do we help people rather than penalize people? Because there's a lot of innovation going on around how those vulnerabilities can be exploited by bad actors. And it's really, you know, the, the, call, the, the rallying cry is actually, how do we help? How do we help and how do we give people the help they need when they need it in whatever channel or form they can understand? And, and so I completely agree with you. It's a philosophy that's well held at CybeSafe. It underpins a lot of what we think and what we do. But I wonder if you were giving advice today, you know, what's the first step somebody can take that really wants to move on from traditional kind of quarterly annual type stuff or just reporting on click rates uh, in terms of phishing simulations, what's the one thing that you would be offering as advice or maybe two things if you've got them (laughs) that you'd be offering somebody saying, you know what, I agree with you, Michelle. I'm frustrated by the fact that I'm constrained by these, perhaps I would call them compliance as a strategy metrics. Uh, How many people completed the training? How many people clicked on the phishing links? And that's all I have, but I know we should be doing more and we should be doing better to help people. What's your advice on how I begin that journey or what step I could take to be different? Meet them where they are. So it's easy for me here because we have a very, we have a very open culture. We can do quite a lot of things, you know, because just in the nature of the things we broadcast. But um, I would say 
the most useful workshops, the most, do you know, the most, the most subscribed overbooked workshop I ever ran wasn't even when I was being paid for it. I did a free one and it was privacy for dating apps. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I ran the, I've run sessions on, on things like that, on unsafe, uh, safe sexting and things like that. And yeah, just getting, giving people the advice because the reason why, which is still, I don't think we have entirely controlled our blast radius ever because there will always be something more we can do. There'll always be somebody leave something open by, none of us are perfect ever. I will never say we're perfect. It's, it's always if not when, right? So let's be humble about that. But let's, the reason the scammers come in is because A, we don't give people enough time in their working day. We need to make sure people have time. You know, do you know, I, I tell people, you know, give some, have your two to three hours where that's where you open your emails and really focus on them. Or when you're, if you get a text from where I think about it, you know, I'm not going to do it. Even if it's saying, you know, you need authentication or whatever, you know, ignore it. <laughs> come back to it in my focus time. And then you've got that. But, you know, we, we don't necessarily allow people to live. But then also, coming back to the point you made, why, why does InfoSec have all these problems? And it's because we don't give people the advice that they need. We just say don't all the time. And we don't talk to them about We don't admit that there's problems with technology. So people do have secure passwords for their social media accounts. They do often have MFA set up. Or they do use things well. Or they are sending images to people who they trust. Or they are using dating apps with the full expectation of privacy or, or the VR headsets or anything else like that, they're not, they're trusting us as technology providers maybe or companies to do that. You know, like this, if I'm using CyberSafe, I'm, I'm trusting that the platform, my data that I'm putting into it will be secured, right? And I, I'm, I'm okay in that. I, I'm safe in that assumption. But a lot of companies, I'm not going to name any, aren't as, you know, like a very famous social media company that starts with them now. So it's, um, it's one of those. And, and that's that the trust gets breached. And then, of course, people just, it's not that they don't care or that they're not interested in security or privacy. It's that they have this trust. And it's betrayed. And then also, we're not talking about the wider landscape where, the, you know, we're being told that end-to-end -end encryption is dangerous and we don't even need it by, you know, at state level, globally, actually. And so that's, those are all things we need to kind of factor in. It's a whole landscape thing that we need to factor in. Like, this is tech. You don't need to be scared of it. It won't break. It's fine. It's fine. But it isn't great. And I think if we start saying to people, it isn't great. These are the, these are the every time you run an update, probably... Some, not necessarily just your phone, your device's update or a thing, or the actual app itself or the platform update. Sometimes your default settings can be moved, can be changed. If we start saying things like that, then people will be more confident and happy to talk to us and maybe think, well, okay, because I think it's just, it's not necessarily learned helplessness, but I think it's just a kind of, well, <laughs> what can I do sort of thing. So we need to be more honest. I completely agree. I completely agree, Michelle. And, and I like this. I think that's good advice for, for our listeners on, on this show. You know, meet people where they are because they approach technology from a position of trust uh, almost as default and they need help to be able to relate to technology in a safe way. And I think that's where perhaps with that kind of posture and bias, we might be able to do more good, you know, as an industry and indeed for the organizations that we serve. One final question for you, Michelle. I'm conscious I've taken up a lot of your time today. I, I read a statistic that startled me just the other day that last year alone, there were 2,700,000 unfilled jobs in cybersecurity. We've got a skills gap and a shortage of, of, of manpower, uh, essentially, in the industry. 
what would you be saying to encourage the growth of people entering into this space? You know, what do you love about this space? Uh, what advice would you, would you be giving to people that are, you know, thinking about entering the space? Because we do have a shortage of human capital Indeed, as there has been, you know, a wider adoption and proliferation of the internet, uh, we're going to need even more soldiers kind of helping us out to fight this war. What, what would you say to, first of all, what do you think about that st- statistic? And then indeed, you know, how would you encourage people who are thinking or are on the periphery of, of, of the industry? I would turn that on its head. Again, it's like with awareness saying, you know, it's you, it's you. It's actually not a candidate problem. I think people love it. I've always loved cybersecurity. I've always loved tech. But it was incredibly hard for me to get. I was I was often told I wasn't technical enough. And yet I've seen my ideas taken and used. And people, you know, people ask me for advice all the time. Um, not that I'm some great servant, don't get me wrong. I'm far, far, far away and not one of the best in the sector. But I have a lot of respect for uh, quite a lot of other people. But it's it's not that they aren't out there. It's that they don't look like the people who are recruits who are hiring. You've got to stop hiring like for people who look like you. You've got to stop insisting on certs. Because I it's like what Michelle Obama said, you know, you, you go into the smartest rooms and you realise that the people actually aren't all that smart. And I don't mean any disrespect, but please don't get it wrong. But you you know, I, I have for years prepared, I will over prepare for a meeting because I'm a woman, I'm a, I'm a parent, um, you know, I'm a single mum and all the rest of it, I'm older. And I will go in. I'm not talking about rooms here. I'm just talking about generally often, you know, outside meetings. And I will be the most informed, qualified person in there. And if I'm the most informed person in the room, you've probably got problems. You should probably be worried. But it's not that. It's There's huge pools of talent. But the problem is that often they get switched off to it because they get corrected because they said SQL wrong <laughs> or something like that. And also we just don't make it very welcoming. So I think it's more like make your hiring processes better because there was just quickly, there was a a platform called interviewing.io, which I think is still live. And they found out that if you go through all these coding challenges, you will guarantee and you pass at a certain rate, which is very high, you will get guaranteed interviewed with like Fang or the top top tech companies as they were. And what they found was that when these people were being hired by, you know, Google and places like that, literally at the point of the offer, you know, the, all the people processes going through, they found the person in the system and those people had often applied up to six times and been rejected, just outright rejected because their name sounded too ethnic or something like that, right? I don't need to tell you this. So it's just, I don't think there's a skill shortage. I think there's a hiring bias issue because I, I've worked with young people I know that they, they're out there, they want to go. But often the ethics of our system and the way that they see us get treated. So yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> Michelle, I can't thank you enough. Thank you ever so much for spending the time with me this morning. There's a couple of wonderful, wonderful nuggets in there. Look, we've got to meet people where they are for sure. Um, we've got to think about how to help people, not penalise people for clicking. And indeed, we've got a hiring process problem, not a skills shortage uh, of people trying to enter the industry in cybersecurity. Well, my guests today, I've had Michelle Leversley, who is indeed the Cybersecurity Awareness Lead at Channel 4. Thank you again, Michelle, and I look forward to hosting you again, hopefully in the future. Thank you. It's been lovely speaking to you. Awesome. Take care.